So we're going to start by talking um, about The Last Wilderness, which is Neil's latest book. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd also like to talk to you about um, some of your life before writing this book, That's because fine. you have had a very, very interesting life by all accounts. You can ask me anything. Thank you. <laughs> and I, you and may have read that later. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Last Wilderness is about five walking journeys you um, you took in Scotland, in northwest Scotland, in the course of a year. Um, judging by that, I kind of expected you to have left about a month ago to get here and have made it here on foot. Uh, but that's not quite how it worked out, and you, it was, you did cut it a bit fine in the end. So you've had a hideous morning already. So I, we're very was, pleased that Neil has actually made it. It was a bit of a British journey to get here, I have to say. It was um, involved replacement bus services and fog-bound airports. <laughs> um, the Last Wilderness is, is really... It's, it's an amazing book, and it's a book that you, you kind of have to read surrounded by Ordnance Survey maps and bird watchers' guides and all kinds of other nature guides. I think I should get commissioned from Ordnance Survey, actually. <laughs> you probably <laughs> should, and I think also from the Scottish Tourist Board. Uh, they should really be giving you a bit of money as well, I think. Um, but can you start by reading us a passage to introduce the book? Sure. Um, I'm going to read an extract from... Uh, early on in the book, um, uh, which uh, has attracted a certain amount of comment, so uh, it, might, uh, it might do so here as well, perhaps. Um, it's from my first trip, which was in November. Uh, I'm on uh, the shores of Loch Sunart, and this is about me watching myself, watching wildlife. A second pair of magansas rounded the head of the little island, also fishing, and with each dive they closed in on the first pair as if they wanted to join them. But the first male seemed to great, take great exception to their presence, and especially that of a rival male. Facing the interloper, he stretched his neck upwards and tipped back his head to the sky. His sharp, hooked beak opened wide. Then he lowered his head to the water his neck stretched out ahead of him and powered off after the intruder. The water behind him churned up in his wake as if he had a little outboard motor. The chase seemed to continue underwater, but the new pair would not be driven off. They continued to dive for fish and seemed to make a point of rising each time as close as possible to the others, as if to deliberately annoy them. As the birds all drifted off together, still bickering, my attention was drawn to a pulse in the kelp at the water's edge right below me. It was a big male otter almost burrowing through the fronds of seaweed that lay collapsed on the tide line. He raised his head suddenly as if he had caught wind of me, weed draped over his head like a bonnet. Then a voice behind me said a loud hello and he was gone in a flash. There was a local woman who greeted me walking her dog. I told her she'd just missed an otter, and she said she had a halt near to her home and saw them often. She had pine martens too, living in her shed, and she put food out for them every day. They would come to her bird table daily, as regular as clockwork. Pine martens are beautiful animals, rather like giant stoats. Nationally, they're extremely rare, but here on the shores of Loch Sunart, they're more common than in other places because of the extent of the local woodlands. 
They're numerous enough that they're a source of local controversy. While some locals encourage them with treats, others are trying to drive them away, for they have a reputation for raiding hen houses. I was invited to drop by and see them for myself. It was a tempting offer, and I have no doubt that if I lived locally, I would be feeding these animals myself and looking forward to their visits. But I couldn't help but think how much I would prefer to run across one unexpectedly, even if it was just a fleeting glimpse of one in the treetops, rather than seeing one by appointment. It is to do with the quality of the experience. It makes me wonder what I, what I, what I am actually seeing when I'm out watch, watching nature. I can see an animal in a zoo, up close and personal, and yet it feels as if it barely even counts. I can watch a television documentary and gain an intimate insight into the private life of an animal, and yet it is no substitute at all for the real thing. Nothing can compare to the joy inspired by even a brief encounter with a scarce and beautiful wild animal in its natural element. It is not about what I have seen, it is about forging a momentary connection with the wild and finding a place in the world for my own wild heart. Yet if the value of such an encounter is in the raw experience of the moment rather than the representation of it, this creates a dilemma for someone like me who wants to try to write about nature. All I can offer is a second-hand experience. I'm not talking here about the sharing of information as in a field guide or a monograph, but about observational nature writing. I can attempt to offer a snapshot of a moment in time, perhaps unrepeatable in its details, a portrait of an individual animal at the moment that its path in life crossed with mine. I can talk about my response to this encounter, the thoughts and memories it evokes, while never forgetting that the natural world has not been placed here for my benefit. It is not here to teach us life lessons, but exists always and only for itself. across very strongly in your work that it's it seems to be the wildlife of a place rather than really than you do write about landscape as well and these are very dramatic landscapes that you're visiting but really it's the wildlife that draws you to these places rather than the landscape is that is that fair I, I, I love the landscape and um, I love to describe the landscape but uh, it's largely static there's only so much you can say about yes. it in the description uh, wildlife brings the landscape to life. They're a part of the landscape, but they are actors within the landscape. And so they, um, uh, they create uh, a drama, a story within the landscape, if you see what I mean. So it's, it's although I, I, I love wildlife, I've always loved wildlife. I love landscape, I've always loved landscape. But uh, it's, it's, it's the combination of the two together, the two working together in harmony which is what really interests me. And why in particular did you choose this area of Scotland? It's, a, it's an area of Scotland called the Rough Bounds, mm -hmm. which I have to admit, I hadn't even come across that name before, even though I've visited this part of Scotland okay. at least a couple of times. Um, can you sort of describe where the Rough Bounds yeah. are? Yeah. 
Um, it's um, on the uh, northwest coast of Scotland, beyond um, uh, Fort William and, uh, and Ben Nevis. There's a series of peninsulas that reach out into the sea like a sort of outstretched hand. Um, between them are uh, the deepest sea lock in Britain and the, um, uh, the deepest freshwater lock in Britain as well. Um, it's a very sparsely inhabited area. There are parts of it which uh, have no roads, which you can only get to um, by long overland hikes or by boat. Um, it's also uh, much more than most of the highlands. It's, it's very well wooded. Um, so you have the, uh, the Atlantic oak woods, the West Atlantic oak woods, which are a sort of temperate rainforest. Uh, you have uh, the northern birch woods, and you have some fragments of the relic Caledonian Scots pine forest as well. Uh, it's um, very rugged, very wild. Uh, it's not a true wilderness because nowhere is a true wilderness. You know, the air that we breathe is affected by human uh, by human activities and the the depths of the ocean. Um, but uh, the area has been called Scotland's last great wilderness by many sources, including the Scottish Tourist Board. Mm -hmm. And so I used the title because it's, I thought it would give me an opportunity to talk about the concept of wilderness and what it meant to me. And I mean, tr it's interesting that you mentioned it's an area full of wooded land, full of woodland, mm -hmm. some, some very ancient woodlands as mm -hmm. well. I mean, there is a passage where you, you, where you write quite a lot about the woodland and that you did come across an area of pristine woodland that yeah. you felt had been there since the retreat of the glaci glaciers. Yeah. And is that partly what made you feel that this is the last wilderness? Because it is land that, no land is ever untouched, but it's as untouched as you, pretty much as you can get. It's as untouched as I could reasonably expect <coughs> to find on these islands, I think. Mm. Um, and so your last wilderness is referring to the last wilderness of the UK. I mean, you have traveled very, very broadly outside yeah. of the UK as well. I mean, you could have gone to all kinds of places in Africa, presumably, that would have been as wild, or you're very much being as the UK. I, I say in the book, I, when I was 20 years old, I was hitchhiking around Britain, and I ended up in this area. And at that time, it was the wildest landscape I've ever seen. Mm. And I said to myself, I will come back. Mm. It's taken me a long time, because in between, I've been to the Arctic, I've hitchhiked across the Sahara, I've hitchhiked across the, the Kalahari, um, I've been to uh, tropical cloud forests, uh, I've climbed in the Himalayas and, and the Andes. Mm. I spent a long time traveling and I've been to some of, I suppose, I was seeking out some of the wildest places mm. on earth. Um, this is uh, me after many years of being a single parent, dipping my toe mm. in the waters of wilderness again getting back to some of the wilderness that you yes, enjoyed as, yeah. a, as a younger man yeah, yeah. Um, tell us a bit about wildlife you you um you were passionate about wildlife as a as a child i think how, how did that come about i actually don't know because i don't remember a time when i wasn't passionate about wildlife um, apparently when i was three years old i was telling my parents i wanted to be the warden of a game reserve <laughs> when i grew up i don't know where it came from but it was my childhood obsession and um but it wasn't something you got from your parents not at all no. not at all it was my thing mm. you know when i was allowed out i would be out running wild in the woods uh, following foxes back to their earths or following kestrels back to their nest it was just my, my mm. 
my thing when I was a child. I was just absolutely dedicated to it. And, um, you know, there have been times in my life where I've had to focus on other things, but it's something that I've always come back to. It's a, li it's a lifelong passion, really. And it's wildlife in, in pretty much all its forms, isn't it? I mean, when some of the wildlife encounters in this book, we go from the, you know, the really dramatic... There's a wonderful passage about um, a, a pod of pilot whales. Yeah. Who you watch. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I think probably it was the most unexpected sighting. My first sighting of whales in British waters, and I always imagined that when I saw whales, I'd be on a boat. Mm. But I wasn't. I was camping on a, um, a fairly remote promontory, and um, suddenly, uh, like a small tidal wave rolled in, and I followed it back, and I saw a, a pod of pilot whales um, circling. Um, and they'd captured, I think, a shoal of mackerel and were swimming in circles while feeding off them. Uh, and then the dolphins came in um, and were diving over the waves created by the, uh, by, by the whales. It was an extraordinary sight and something um, that I just never anticipated. No, especially probably never see again. Probably not, especially pilot whales usually live quite far out. They only come close to shore when they're following fish. So um, uh, there are other whales that you would uh, more expect to see than those, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. I mean, obviously, an encounter, wildlife encounter like that would be amazing for any of us. But mm. it, yeah, I mean, you really are interested in all kinds of wildlife. A few pages before that, um, there's quite a long discourse about barnacles, which I, I actually found quite interesting because my son's really into rock pools. So I seem to spend quite a lot of time sitting looking at barnacles. Um, and I was really interested to learn they're not actually mollusks, but they're crustaceans. Um, and you can talk quite a lot about the sex life of a barnacle, so it's probably not something you want to go into it's, now. But it's more interesting <laughs> than you'd think. <laughs> yeah. if, if you're interested, come and have a word with me afterwards. Um, but lichen as well, that was your yeah. thing as a child, wasn't it? It, you was know, one of, it, was, it was my attempt as a child to, to widen my range of interests in nature and to embrace all nature rather than just the, the big obvious things, the birds and the mammals. And um, it was something I wanted to do in this book was although um, mammals and, and, uh, and birds, because they're the most advanced, they be, they, their behavior is the most complex, there's more to say about them. But I wanted to show that I wasn't neglecting the little things in life as well because they all have their own, uh, their own interest. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so the book, the, the, the ethos of, is the, of the book is that it's these five walking trips to Scotland over, over the course of a year. But it's a, also a very uh, retrospective book, isn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, you're talking um, a lot about experiences from the past. Something yeah. reminds you of somewhere else you've been as a young man, something else you've done. Um, a lot keeps coming back to the five years you spent alone in a dilapidated cottage in Mid Wales, which mm -hmm. I'd like to come on to later. Um, but I felt, reading the book, you were a very young man to be writing in such a respect, retrospective way. I'm but really not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you, <laughs> maybe you look much, much younger than you, much, much younger than you are. But um, it, it struck me as a, as a book someone would write later in their life. And you do write about um, incremental hearing loss and about 
um, as quite a serious heart condition yeah. that you have. And I wondered if those are the reasons why you're looking back on your life as you're sort of losing, losing your hearing and losing your health. Do you, is that what's made it retrospective, do you think? I, th I think um, the, the gradual hearing loss that I was experiencing at the time uh, made me dwell on loss. It made me mm. think about species loss and habitat mm. loss. And, Which you uh, do write about a lot in this book as yes, well. Yes, indeed. But, uh, so it, it made me sort of meditate on these issues. Um, in terms of, of reflecting on the past, I mean, the, what, the way I wrote the book was I, I would go to Scotland, walk for a week on my own, um, uh, usually camping or staying in Bothies, and then I'd go home and I'd write about it. And when I finished writing about it, I'd go back to Scotland. Mm. So I was going back and forth. So each each section that I wrote was a process of recollection of very recent events. But what happens is when, when you write narrative nonfiction, you put, you're putting yourself into the narrative. And when you're, an, when you're observing nature, uh, you are not a camera. You are not a blank slate. You carry all your own personal history with you. In a way, um, who we are is a, is a collection of our accumulated memories and experiences. And so when I look at uh, a, Scot a, a forest of Scots pine, my view of that forest is hugely affected by the fact that I spent some years living in Sweden, working as a forestry worker, and hand-planted a million Scots pine trees. That affects the way I look at that wood, and I, I can't write about things without acknowledging that we have history, mm. if you see what I mean. And you describe it at one point as having, I think you say, it's a, a backpack of life that you carry around with you, and you sit down and unpack your experiences. sit down on a mossy stump and unpick the backpack of life and say, what's this? Why do I carry this? with me everywhere yeah. that I go. Yeah. yeah. And have you have you got lots of memories that you've forgotten as well, other <laughs> things that you actually don't want to unpack? I, I can't stay remember in the bottom if of I've the got backpack. That I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's your fourth journey to, to Scotland. Um, towards the end of, and, and on that journey you've decided to go to Noidart, yeah. which is famously an area, I don't know if anyone's been there, but it's, it's famous for being the most inaccessible place pretty much in the, in the country. You can only get in either by sea or by hiking for several days over some very high mountains. It's not several days, but it's probably two days. Two days hike yeah, over the mountains. That's days. extreme enough yeah, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and you went there knowing that you had a heart condition. Yes. I and did. towards the end of that, uh, that visit, you, I think you were woken up in your tent at night by what serious chest pains yes and you say i know this is the moment i really should be calling an ambulance and yet you're still several miles away from any kinds of civilization yes and also there's no mobile signal no mobile signal either. um i knew i i knew i had a health problem uh, and i knew that there was a level of risk but there's a level of risk in everything that you do. There's a level of risk involved in leaving the house in the morning. Uh, most of the things that people enjoy doing, skiing, mm. water, uh, water sports, mountaineering, they all carry risk with them. And you make this assessment of how much you want to do something against the level <laughs> of risk. Uh, you just, 
otherwise I'd argue never your, get your level of, of risk aversion is probably <laughs> you've got a high, higher level than most. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose it's probably true that I have been a bit of a risk taker in life. Um, but I, I judge that, you know, I wasn't, I, I was hill walking in Scotland. You know, it's, I, I wasn't crossing the Antarctic. There, there is a section towards the end of the book um, <laughs> where it says that, you know, these areas of Scotland, you know, it's not like the Himalayas, but earlier today I passed a sign that said missing, you know, missing person sign. Mm. And I, I think it was six months, from six months ago, a man exactly your age yeah. had gone lost, you know, the last known location of this man. Doing the same walk doing the that same, I was doing on, Doing what yeah. you were doing. It's true. Um, do these I things mean, speak you, you, or do you just no, feel um, optimistic mean, about it? Things can happen, but you know, the, the chances are not that not high enough to stop me from doing them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So anyway, he he spent um, he spent the night pacing up and down in the pitch black along a beach, mm. uh, knowing that he had to really had to get to hospital as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that, that says enough about the kind of man you are, I think. Mm. Um, but the book's subtitle also is is a journey into silence, presumably a reference to your to your hearing loss, and it's particularly the loss of bird song. Yeah, that, I mean, uh, it was something you. that, um, because I was writing the book as it was happening, mm. themes emerged during the writing of the book that I, uh, that I didn't know were going to be included. I knew I would be writing a book about landscape and nature and solitude, um, but uh, the hearing loss, the additional hearing loss took me by surprise. I've been deaf in my left ear since infancy, so I, you know, I've always managed with limited hearing. What I've now got is age-related hearing loss in what was my good ear. So um, uh, my hearing is rapidly deteriorating from the high frequencies down in, in uh, my good ear, um, which is kind of adding insult to injury, to be honest. But, but the way I became aware of it was realizing that I could no longer see and no longer hear certain birds that I could see singing. Uh, they're, just, uh, they're just completely gone, just, um, just like they were shut out. Mm. And so it almost became like the reverse of a, 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 a twitcher's tick list of birds. I was almost like crossing birds off that I'd never be able to hear mm. again. Could I read a very short Go bit? ahead, yeah, please do. And that cites an example of this. If I can find it, yes, here we go. Uh, I sat off along the shore of Loch Marah with my pack. The birds were singing and, all, and the woods were a haze of blue, for this was the peak of the bluebell season. Their scent lingered on the air, the characteristic drug-like scent of a sunny spring day in Britain. Common sandpipers flushed from the shore alongside and flew in arcs away from me, keeping their distance. Their flight is utterly distinctive. They fly low to the water, their wings hooded, almost umbrella-like, so that their wingtips dip almost to the surface and they call their piercing, insistent call, which to me has always been emblematic of summer in the uplands, but not anymore. For me, they are no longer sandpipers. For me, they are just sand. I can scarcely believe that I've now lost such a shrill, loud call. It starts to feel as though my world is being dismantled around me, piece by piece.
and yeah, mm, so thank you. You um, get the idea. <laughs> there's actually quite a few passages where you, as you say, almost listing the birds as you as you see them and you you see their mouths opening and yes, you realise that one by one you're losing. Beside me, singing a wren about two foot away, and I'm going like this, trying to hear one note, mm, and it's just completely it's gone. gone. Yeah. Um, so let's go back. As I said, it's a retrospective book, so Neil does talk quite a lot, mm. write quite a lot about other parts of your life. Um, can we talk a little bit? In your in your twenties, you did something very unusual. You went and lived on the streets with homeless people yes, I did. in something you describe as voluntary poverty. Yeah. Um, what made you want to do that? Um, it's, it's something that's actually been a, quite a big part of my life because uh, later in life I again worked with homeless people so uh, um, I spent about 10 years of my life. Um, I've never said this in public before um, and it's something maybe one day I'll write about. When I was a child, when I was seven years old, a house burned down I was rescued from a burning building and um, my family was homeless and, and lost everything, everything except the clothes, we, except pyjamas we were in, in fact. And um, we spent an entire winter living in a, an abandoned building with, with no services. Yeah. Um, my parents had fallen out with their families. We had no one to turn to. There was no, uh, this was back in the 60s, so there was no Homeless Persons Act. Uh, so there was, uh, there was no help to be had. So we lived in an abandoned building for a whole winter in one room with a paraffin fire uh, and um, cooking over a camping stove. Um, we had no hot water. Uh, and, um, and I think perhaps that uh, ingrained in me uh, an, uh, an empathy for mm. people who have been through this kind of hardship. Mm. Um, so I think, I think that was perhaps why and understanding I, I the turned. reasons, the wide yeah. range of reasons for homelessness. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And, and it, do you think that it sounds like that experience has actually informed many, many of the your almost your character traits that I, uh, I think and experiences that, through I, your life. I think it's absolutely true, and I think it's something that I need to finally write about mm. to get out of my system, because I think a lot of the issues around. Um, uh, that I do deal with, like about solitude and self-sufficiency mm. um, uh, and, and independence um, and uh, home and homelessness. I think mm. they, a lot of these things do stem from a, a formative uh, childhood incident. Yeah. I look forward to that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, continuing on this theme of, of solitude and, and self-sufficiency, um, and I touched on it earlier, you spent five years in your 30s, I believe, living in From the Mid age Wales. of 30 to the age of 35, uh -huh. yeah. And you lived in a very remote part of Wales, in a very dilapidated cottage. And this is something that I can relate to. As I, I said to Neil earlier, my family has a very old cottage in, in North Wales, so a bit, bit further north from, than where you were, which my grandparents bought in 1946, and really not much has happened to it since 1946. <coughs> we have water coming in from a stream that's kind of still got bits of bracken and sheep poo in. But that's pure luxury compared to, to yours. You didn't have running water of any kind. You were no, collecting no running water, um, no gas or electricity. Um, well, nothing basically. <laughs> so I cooked, cooked, I cooked over a log fire, fire um, 
with logs that I'd cut myself yeah. <laughs> for five years and, it, and wrote a book about it. And wrote a book about it. And, I mean, to me, I, mean, I'm, you know, I like solitude and I, I like camping and stuff. Part of me thinks that's you know, it's quite nice on a lovely sunny day. You know, it's quite idyllic, a bit romantic even. But you don't, in, in mid Wales, in the hills, <laughs> you get a lot of not sunny days. Um, yeah, I did get snowed did in for six weeks once, so I had to <laughs> dig my way out to the woodshed. Well, you got, you got, you may have got snowed in, but you also had no transport anyway, so no, you were totally no limited to what you could do in a day's yeah. walk, yeah. unless you did a bit of hitchhiking yeah. to the coast or whatever. Yeah. No car, not even a bike. Um, uh, <laughs> and yet you stuck it out for five years. Yeah, <laughs> I, I went <laughs> That's there. Quite it was open-ended. I had no idea how long I'd stay for. I, I think that I have a certain stubbornness, which is, mm. if I, I, I might just decide to do something on a whim, and then I will go all out yeah. um, and, um, and try. But uh, to be fair, when I moved to Wales, I didn't know how long I'd last, mm. but it became, it just became my life, mm. um, what I did. Um, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. I grew, grew all my own food or foraged for my, my food. Um, I didn't really need to earn any money. I did the occasional day's work, but my rent was £100 a year. I had no bills, and I grew my own food. I mean, if I'd, if I'd signed on the dole, <laughs> I'd have had loads of money saved by the end of it. <laughs> I think they might have checked up that you were actually looking for work. Uh, I'm not sure you'd have got, away, got away with it. <laughs> but, I mean, were there times when you thought, I wish I could just go to a nice centrally heated flat and... You know, click a switch and make a cup of tea rather than having to boil the water over a fire. Or you know, you know the way I looked at it, it, if 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 I wanted to, I knew that I could walk down to the road, which was about an hour or hour and a half's walk away, and stick out my thumb. And if I wanted to, I could be in a nightclub in London with my mates that night. Mm, mm. Britain's not very big. Yeah. You get a lift after a while. You might yeah. have to wait an hour or two, but you always get a, get lifts in the end. Because I knew that I could, I didn't have didn't to. Need to. So, uh, in the five years that I was there, there was the, the nearest village was about three, four miles away, mm. and there was a village pub, and I never went there. I didn't think I ever decided I'm going to have a night out in the pub. Yeah. I just never did. Yeah. Because because I could, so I didn't have to. The solitude is obviously something that's very, very important to you. You were alone there. You had occasional visitors in summer. Yeah. But probably for, what, 10 months of the year, you, you didn't. Yeah, it, would, uh, it was true that for weeks at a time, I could go without seeing anyone, mm. um, let alone being with anyone. Um, I would, what does it mean know, to you to be alone? Why, why, why seek out solitude in such a, in such a way? Um, it was an experiment with myself really. Just, I was sort of wanted to see if I could do it and I actually what happened is I found that in time I began to almost forget myself. So I wouldn't think about what I was what I'd done yesterday. I wouldn't think about what I was going to do tomorrow. It's almost as if your sense of self is dependent on having other people around you to reflect an idea of self back at you. So I would just get on with my daily routine of hauling water from the well down the hill, mm. chopping wood. Everything took time. If I wanted a cup of tea, you know, I had to light a fire with wood that I'd brought in, 
and wait while a hanging kettle boiled over the fire. So I, it felt physically busy, uh, but uh, mentally I didn't need to think. So really I sort of forgot about myself and became more and more preoccupied with the natural world. And um, one thing I found, I did keep a, a diary while I was there. And um, my first year's diary was fairly conventional, what I did that day um, and so on. And then it became gradually more and more a nature diary. Uh, and by, by the end, I wasn't in my own diary. Uh, I wasn't actually a character in my own diary. I was only talking about things outside of myself. Yeah. It's as if it, it, it's the opposite of introspection. Uh, solitude, you, you might think, because of the idea of retreat, where you go to be on your own and look inwards, you think that solitude is an introspective activity, but it isn't. In time, it becomes the opposite. You focus is completely outwards of yourself. Mm. Mm. Um, you, you now you've, you've moved away from that completely. You now live in Brighton, which is a big, buzzing place. Yeah. Um, having read your books, I can't imagine you living I in I can't city. hardly imagine myself living there. I, I feel, <laughs> it feels temporary. What yeah. happened is, while I was living in that cottage in Wales, I went on a, on a, a, a trip to a, a friend's wedding. Mm. And at that wedding, I met the woman who was to become the mother of my children. We started a long-distance relationship, and she started coming up to visit me in Wales. And we just ended up deciding to start a family. And we picked Brighton out of a hat, really, um, as a good place to bring up uh, to bring up kids. So we thought, and um, it lasted for quite a long time. But we did finally split up. Mm. And now I've got kids; they live with me, but they want to see their mum sometimes. So uh, you know, it's hard enough getting someone you're in a relationship with to follow you around the world. <laughs> getting someone you split up with to follow you around yeah. the world is even harder. But at the same time, you could have chosen. <laughs> somewhere in the countryside. There are schools. <laughs> Had to find work, yeah. you know, and so on, and, which I did. And, and it's, not, it's not, I do feel sort of stranded there, but it's not yeah. a bad place to be stranded. Yeah. Um, I'm right by the sea. I can see the sea yeah. from the window. And does it, does it suit you in some ways? I mean, you've been there quite a long time now. Yeah, it suits me, but I, am, I do feel like I'm kind of marking time because my yeah. kids are getting older now and I'm thinking, you know, I'll be soon. Free I can soon. get away. <laughs> yeah. And I will be back <laughs> to the wilds. Yeah, I'm sure you yeah, will. Yeah, I know um, that you, shortly before coming here, you were up in the rough bands with one of your daughters. I, you? I did. I took, um, I took my older daughter. When I was writing this, my uh, older daughter said to me, I want to come with you. And I said, well, now I'm writing a book about solitude. You can't come with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, uh, when the book's out, I'll, I'll take you. And so, um, uh, I uh, took her with me just two two weeks ago. We went we went up and um, we spent a few days um, staying in a bothy, and uh, we foraged for wild mushrooms and we cooked them over driftwood fire, and it was it was quite stormy. We had to roll up our trousers and wade across berms. And did she and take after you? Did she like this? Or she loved it. She loved it. Yeah, she absolutely adored it. Adored it. She was well up for it. And she's yeah. that's the older one. She's. 21. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it has, did having, I mean, I know from my own um, perspective, since I've had children, it's, it's definitely reined in my, um, my reckless streak. 
I'm, I'm not as extreme as you, but I'm, I'm fairly reckless and fatalistic <laughs> in, in, in a lot of ways. And it's having children's given me a much more acute sense of my own mortality and the importance of me staying alive and staying healthy for my kids. Did, did that happen for you? Because you still seem to remain pretty fatalistic despite having children. Is that because they're older? Or you know, did, did it rein you in? Um, I mean, I, th I think I've done some quite adventurous things e even since I've been a parent. I mean, as I mentioned to you earlier, I, I spent some time working for the uh, for the BBC, where I specialised in undercover investigations, which is quite uh, scary work mm. sometimes, um, quite intimidating work, um, and not everyone uh, feels they can do that. I think it was the years in Wales gave me a sense of uh, self-sufficiency, mm. which gave me a, a sort of inner calm, which enabled me to keep this sort of steely nerve when you're about to bring down a a master criminal or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think you know I have to, I have had a, a an adventurous life, and I think it, it's true that I, w I would be very careful not to put my children through risks which I yeah. accept for myself yeah. because they're my responsibility. And you know, and when when I split up with the kids' mum, uh, I've said I've said instantly. They're half mine. I will have them at least half the time. Mm. And it, as things have turned out, it's been more than half the mm. time, and that's fine. Mm. Um, because you know, in the same way as going to a cottage in Wales and sticking with it because of stubbornness, I'm the same with my children. Yeah. I say I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have kids. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do it properly. Um, yeah, I'm going to do it properly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where to next? So your, your youngest daughter has nearly finished school. You're marking time till, till freedom when you feel that you can get away again. Well, where are you going to go? My youngest daughter just turned 17 uh, in the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So she's just started doing her A-levels. So two years at college and then she'll yeah. be off to university. Yeah. And then uh, I'm off and they can come and visit me and, um, and spend as much time with me as they want. Do you know where you're going to, have you got in mind what you're going to do yet? I haven't quite made my mind up yet, but I have some ideas. <laughs> some in, in this country or Well, abroad? I had thought about um, the west coast of Scotland uh, as a possibility, but um, it might not be enough for me. It might yeah. need to be someone a little bit more uh, adventurous than that. We'll see. <laughs> um, but when I decide to do it, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> yeah, I bet you will. <laughs> and you'll be very stubborn about it. Um, very quick last question from me, because then I'm going to open it up. I'm sure everybody else has got lots of questions too. You, you obviously have an interest in an affinity with, with Celtic lands. You can't come to Cornwall without um, answering a question about Cornwall. Do you, have you spent time in Cornwall? Have you done some walking here? Yeah, I have. I came. Um, it's a long time ago. It's when I was in, in my early 20s, when I was hitchhiking around Britain, and I think the same journey that took me to the Rough Bounds. Uh -huh. I came down through Cornwall, sleeping rough, no tent, yeah. uh, and, I, and I got as far as the Scillies. So um, oh, you did? Uh, and uh, uh, went to two or three of the Scilly Islands. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the country, mm. and uh, I hope to be invited back. Well, we've invited I hope you. I won't you're only be run out of town. <laughs> you're, you're only here for a couple of hours. I know it's ridiculous. I've got a, I've got a festival in Mid Wales tomorrow morning, 
so I, I can't hang about, unfortunately. Yes. Not this time, and but next time. Next time. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll be sure to get you back. Um, I'm going to open it up to any, any questions from, from the audience. Could you just wait till the microphone comes to you? No, well, just so, wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Sorry, I, I, I really am quite deaf. What was the... Okay. What, was the, what was the undercover work for the BBC? Uh, <laughs> I, I could tell you, but... <laughs> it's, 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 no. Um, although I have, I have done a couple of nature programmes when I was with the was BBC. No, no, not undercover. I have done a couple of nature programmes for the BBC. Mostly what I did was undercover investigations, and it was the sort of the sharp edge of undercover investigations. So thing, you know, working for things like Panorama and Newsnight, investigating, infiltrating criminal networks, um, and so on. Um, quite um, uh, the, the rough edge of it. I can't talk about it in detail. <laughs> I'd love to write a book about it, but it would have to be anonymous, I think. So yeah. But um, it was very uh, exciting work, and sometimes extremely frustrating. Um, and um, a lot of the people that do that, it's quite a small world of people that do undercover work. I, I probably bet a lot of them. A lot of them tend to be ex-military special forces because not many journalists do it because it's quite nerve-wracking. It's quite um, intimidating. Um, but um, I think because I have this sort of what I call my inner calm, I, I was able to, um, to stand there in front of a... Uh, a criminal mastermind and bring him down in his own words. That's the beauty of it, with hidden cameras and so on. So yeah, it was it was very entertaining at times and very frustrating at others. Yep. And if Neil tells you any more about it, then he'll definitely have to kill you. <laughs> I, I nearly said that, but I was too polite. <laughs> any more questions over here? Um, you're talking about your daughters, and I've got my 18-year-old daughter next to me. What advice have you got about looking after nature and your affinity with animals for the next generation? Sorry, could you repeat that? Sorry. <laughs> so what advice have you got? She's got her 18-year-old daughter next to her. What advice have you got for about looking after nature for the next generation? Is, is, that, is that right? I think, I think the next generation are doing well in terms of, I think, this new generation have got a much greater understanding of, uh, of the environment than our generation had. Um, and I think there's, there's a, a huge level of, aware, of awareness about, among young people. It's one of the few things that makes me feel hopeful about the future, is that young people do seem to have a genuine commitment uh, to, to focus on the environment and think environmentally and try to make the world a better place. So, more power to them. <laughs> They're going to do a better job than we did. <laughs> do you think it's too, is it too late though? Is, is there still hope? I mean, in the book you do write about lots of, you know, extinction of animals that existed in your, in your childhood that are no longer there. Do you think there's, there's still hope? I think the world of the future is going to be in some ways impoverished from uh, what we have even now, in the same way the world that we have now is really quite impoverished from what the, what the world was a hundred years ago. Um, I think we need to think about 
damage limitation as much as possible. I think there are all sorts of issues that I raise in the book. I think there's a need for um, to preserve areas of the world with, which have greater biodiversity. And I, as I suggest in the book, there are places that really would benefit from no one going at all, not even me. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's important that we, we don't see the natural world solely as a resource for us, but to, to recognize that it has an intrinsic value uh, of its own. Uh, and we need to almost think about uh, a rights-based approach towards the natural world and the environment. Uh, that's something that I hope to see building with this generation. Mm. <laughs> Any more questions? Over, over here. I'm just back from Neudart, but I went, I went by train, sorry. Tell me about the Kalahari, which I also know. Oh, right, okay. Um, yeah, I spent, um, I spent a few months in um, uh, Botswana and Zimbabwe. Um, I hitchhiked across the Kalahari and went to the Okavango. Um, the, the Okavango, I don't know if anyone knows, it's, it's the sixth largest river in Africa that never reaches the sea. It flows into the Kalahari seasonally floods an area about the size of Britain, I think, um, and is uh, a, an incredible haven for wildlife because the waters take six months to reach there. Um, so it's in the middle of the dry season in the Kalahari. You get an area the size of Britain which becomes a flooded wasteland, which you can only explore by uh, dugout canoe, Nakuru. I, um, I was a bit cheeky because I didn't have any money. I was just hitchhiking and I managed to get a lift. I got a lift with three Americans and they were hiring two dugout canoes and so they had a spare spot. <laughs> so they took me with them canoeing for a week in the, in the Okavango. Um, and uh, yeah, it was um, uh, one, of, one of my favorite places that I visited and I actually found the, the people of the Kalahari uh, fascinating to meet as well so yeah I, I agree I've been to the I did something very similar to you I hitchhiked into the Okavango Delta Yay. and got a hitch, hitched a ride in a Makoro and it is one of the most spectacular it places is incredible, to live. Yeah. quite an incredible yeah. Yeah. experience uh, question oh you come across as a very calm meditative sort of guy is that something you've always had or have you training or have you just worked on that kind of quiet ability to deal with things and how does that help you in your life perhaps now as you're going down? I think I think even as a child I was quite self-sufficient I was always out wandering about on my own uh, and I, I always felt that company was an optional extra that um, company was fine but I didn't actually need it so I've always had this sort of personal self-sufficiency about me. And then I think when I went and lived on my own in Wales for five years, uh, I think that, that part of me grew and I became uh, a person who felt they had an inner calm. Um, uh, maybe I'm just telling myself this, but it's a, telling myself it is enough to have enabled me to, to do 
uh, some very challenging things in my life without feeling phased uh, by them, if you see what I mean. You talk about inner calm. We can't all go to Wales for five years. What tips would you give us to get to that inner calm? <laughs> so I'm going to have to ask for that to be repeated. <laughs> um, you talk about inner calm, yeah. uh, but we can't all go to Wales for five years to, 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 to get that inner calm. What tips can you give us well, for how to achieve it? I, I feel that uh, spending time in nature is something that benefits everybody. They have this concept in uh, Japan, I think, of fast bathing. If you're stressed, you go for a walk in the woods and it calms uh, your senses. So I, I just think it's a matter of, uh, clearly, you, um, not everyone can do all the things that I've done all the time. But what you can do, it changes at different points in your life. So what I can do at the moment while I'm responsible for children is different from what I could do when I was in my 20s. So what you, you have to do is you find, a, try and find spaces within your life uh, when you can indulge yourself. I would say, for me, it would be always in nature. Take a walk in the woods, even in the park. Uh, whatever, whatever suits you, whatever you can manage, it, anything is better than nothing. Um, to get yourself away from the fray. I mean, there are other, th other things you can do. You have to make your own determination of what would benefit you in terms of your own sense of calm. It might be disengaging with social media for a period of time, um, because that's a source of stress for a lot of people. But um, having a, a news-free week, um, so you don't hear about uh, things that are going on in the news, which again can generate a lot of stress. Um, obviously there are elements in your life which you can't change and there are elements in your life which you can change. So you have to look at your life and say, what can I improve and what can't I improve? And focus in on areas of your life uh, where you could uh, treat yourself more kindly uh, to give yourself a more peaceful life. Okay. Does that help? Any more questions? Probably got time for another one or two. Thank you very much. Would you describe yourself as a spiritual person? Um, I find that a difficult question. I think perhaps in a way, um, but what I see as spiritual, you might think of as the natural world. The natural world is my spirituality. Um, so in a way, I appreciate it. Uh, in a spiritual way, uh, but at the same time that's not to say that I assume that there are things in it which can't be, can't be tested, if you see what I mean. Do you understand? Um, I enjoyed hearing about you talking about seeing wildlife in its natural environment rather than in an artificial environment and I wondered if there's a species of animal that you haven't yet seen that you would like to catch in the wild. Yeah. Visually, but, not obviously. Very much so. I spend uh, an, an element of the book is devoted to my failed attempts to see wild cats in Scotland um, because I kept coming across their footprints, uh, their fresh kills. 
I started to get this sense that there was one watching me all the time, <laughs> but always just out of sight. I would say I have seen uh, native wildcats in Africa when I was in Africa, same species. Um, so I do have a, a wildcat experience, but I, I really wanted a Scottish wildcat, and I spent the whole year looking for them and never got one. And I've been back repeatedly looking for them since and still not seen one. But I'll just keep going until I get one. They know because, you're there. Yeah, they know I'm, they know I'm coming. Um, have we got, we've probably got time for one more question, if, if there is one. Um, I love traveling and going lots of places, but I'm not very good at doing it by myself. Um, but I would like to be, so what tips or things do you think I could do to improve that? Um, tips for travelling on your own? Yes. Um, my, um, my older daughter went travelling um, on her own. She, um, she went to Southeast Asia uh, and she travelled, uh, she went to hostels where other travellers were staying, uh, which made her feel safe and enabled her to meet people. Now, um, I have to say, it's, it's, there's a balance. I'm a little bit cautious about what to say here because the experience is different for men and for women. Uh, women face greater risks being alone than men do, of course. Having said that, there is a movement afoot among women to, uh, to reclaim the wilds. Uh, and there's, um, it's something uh, worth looking into looking into the experience of other women who've done solo traveling uh, and what they've done to keep themselves safe, what compromises they felt they had to make, and what, and more importantly, what compromises they recognized that in actual fact they didn't need to make. So I think, I, in a way, I'm not the person to ask. I think other women travelers, and there is a growing movement of solo women travelers, who are, uh, who are uh, uh, working in this area and developing uh, guides to how to do this and where, what places are safe to go to as a solo woman traveler and what aren't. But if you, stay safe, but definitely do it. It's, it's, um, uh, what you get from solitude is you get a quality of attention to the world around you that you never quite get in company. Um, when you're with other people, you see yourself within the landscape. When you're on your own, your focus is outwards at the world around you and you become much more attentive and you see much more. So I really would recommend solo traveling, but obviously keep safe. Okay. Thank you. I think we're, I think Patrick's hovering with a microphone. I, I could, I could listen for hours. And, uh, and I love the calming effect of Neil's voice while this marquee is jellyfishing rather alarmingly above us. Neil and Lisa, thank you both so much. This is a thank really you for inviting fascinating me. conversation. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.